Hi, I'm Tammy Hicks-Jackson. Welcome to my podcast. I am a Christian pastor in the United Methodist tradition, and this podcast covers a variety of topics. You may find anything from Bible study and devotions to yoga and meditation from a Christian perspective to my thoughts on Christian leadership and the church. Look for the descriptions and the tags for each episode to find what you're interested in. And thanks for taking this journey with me. Let's jump into this episode. In this podcast today, we're looking at 2 Kings chapter 7 through 12. Chapter Verses 1 and 2 of chapter 7 are actually connected with a portion that started back in chapter 6, verses 24. We saw there at the end of chapter 6 that some time elapses. There's a new king over in Syria, which is also called Aram. Now Ben-Hadad is king, and he has attacked once again. They're coming under siege, and there's no food. There's famine inside the city because the siege is lasting for so long, and the people are resorting to cannibalism because they can't afford to buy what meager resources are left. Um, Dove droppings, if your translation says that, are also called carob beans. Um, So when they're talking about how expensive carob beans are, they're literally talking about bird droppings. Um, There's a kind of coffee that is made from birds eating seeds. They digest part of it and then poop out the seed, and that makes a really wonderful coffee. So it is something like this, part of the pre-digested food. So they're resorting to eating something you wouldn't normally want to. We're also told that... um, Things that cost like five shekels of silver, that's more than a month's wages. And so a donkey head, which wouldn't have a lot of meat on it, but could be simmered and made into a stew, is costing 80 shekels of silver. So um, years worth of wages to get something that still isn't very nutritious or satisfying. We have a really horrible story here uh, to illustrate how badly things have gotten. A story of two women who agree to kill and eat their children. Um, They probably draw lots and they decide, okay, so today I'm going to kill my child and then tomorrow we're going to kill your child. And so that's what they do with the first woman's child. But when it comes time to kill the second woman's child, she can't do it and she hides her child. And the first woman actually takes her to court. She appeals to the king, to the court, to make the other woman do um, what she promised to do. The king is infuriated with the very story, but he directs his ire at the prophet Elisha instead of on the attacking army. I find that really interesting that he's mad at God and God's representative instead of being mad at what's happening and why it might actually be happening. Elisha, however, says, don't worry, um, things are going to get better tomorrow. Everything will be normal. The siege is going to end. The king has nothing to say in reply to that, but his captain expresses doubt. Like, why is tomorrow going to be any different from today? Elisha insists that what he is prophesying will, in fact, come true, but he says the captain is not going to get to enjoy it. In verses 3 through 8, we have a story of four lepers who are contemplating their death. Their leprosy already has them as outcasts. There's no point in being carried off to Samaria as captives. They might as well die now. So they decide they're going to go over to the Aramean camp, and at least the death will be swift. They go at twilight, so just about sundown, and they find that the Arameans are packing up and leaving. They believe that they have heard chariots, that there's an enormous 
army coming against them in battle and they're fleeing. The lepers get to have a good party. They go in and eat and drink. They plunder what is there and hide what they want. And then they go and tell the king. Um, The king thinks it's a trap being set. The Arameans are not really packing up and leaving. Why would they do that? So he sends two men on horses to take a look, and they find the scattered remains of the hasty retreat of the enemy army. So all the people go, plunder what is there, and all happens as Elisha said it would happen, including the fact that the captain does not get to enjoy it because he's trampled to death at the city gate. Moving into chapter 8, verses 1 through 6, we have a story where Elisha warns the Shunammite woman of the coming famine. Remember, this is the woman whose child um, he resuscitated. There's no mention of what has happened to her husband. It's possible that she is a widow at this point. But she relocates into the Philistine territory for seven years. While she's gone, her lands are taken over by somebody else. So when she returns, she goes to the king to petition to get her land back. And Gehazi is there telling the king stories of Elisha. Now, I think it's interesting that the king, who clearly doesn't like Elisha, gets really angry at him frequently, is listening to stories. Is Gehazi trying to persuade him that Elisha is not against him? He's just a true prophet that he might need to listen to? Um, Gehazi, of course, is Elisha's um, assistant. And I want to know what happened to Gehazi's leprosy. Back in chapter 5, verses 19, he didn't like that Naaman, a foreigner, is given what he asked for without price. And so he takes some of the booty anyway in there. So um, we know that leprosy was a term to describe a number of skin conditions, anything from a rash to psoriasis and eczema to actual what we would call leprosy. It certainly appears that what Gehazi was struck with was something of shorter duration that has now cleared up, or he might have repented and been healed of it. So um, as the Shunammite woman arrives, Gehazi is actually telling her story, the story of Elisha um, saving her son, and the king is moved, and so he restores to her all that she has lost. In verses 7 through 15, Elijah has gone on a visit over to Damascus into the Aramite territory where Ben-Hadad is king. So the prophets in Israel don't always just stay in Israel or Judah. They travel. They are, they are prophets of the one true living God. And that voice comes not just to one nation, but to all the people of the world. The king Ben-Hadad is ill, and he sends Hazael over to ask if he will recover. Elisha tells Hazael to tell the king he will recover, but that he really will not. Elisha then stares at Hazael in what's an, an interesting episode. He stares at him until Hazael is embarrassed, and Elisha bursts into tears. Um, when Hazael says, why are you weeping? He says, well, I'm seeing the future. You're going to kill Ben-Hadad, you're going to become king, and you're going to commit atrocities against my people like we've never seen before. Um, This shows us that God's prophets speak more than to just God's chosen people, but but to everyone. In verses 16 through 29, the scene shifts over to Judah, from Israel to Judah, where Jehoshaphat's son Jehoram comes to be king. He's 32 years old, and he's going to rule for eight years. Um, He's going to marry a daughter of Ahab, 
of Israel, and Edom is going to revolt against him. Sometimes he's going to be called Jehoram, and sometimes he's going to be called Joram. So sometimes the EH gets dropped and he become, and the name gets shortened a little bit. It's the same person. Uh, another place referred to in two ways is Zair, Z-A-I-R, if your translation says that. It's also um, Seir, S-E-I-R, two ways of referring to the same city. You'll see that in Second Chronicles 21 and 22. During a raid, most of Judah, then the royal family of Judah, is going to be killed. Only Ahaziah is going to remain. However, he's only going to rule for one year. Remember that um, the same name is going to appear over in Second Chronicles. Ahaziah of Judah is going to join Jehoram or Joram of Israel in war against Hazael of Syria or Ram. So Judah and Israel are going to align, but it is an alliance of political and military expediency. It is not a return to unity, um, to faithfulness, obedience, and righteousness. Because they war against Hazael, we see that what Elijah prophesied has come to pass. Hazael is now the king instead of Ben-Hadad. Chapter 9, um, Elisha sends an unnamed member of the group of prophets that he leads to anoint Jehu as king um, and to tell him that his mission is going to be to destroy the house of Ahab, to kill all of the members of that family. This will fulfill what Elijah prophesied back in 1 Kings 21 verse 23. The prophet that he sends goes in, anoints Jehu, tells him this, and then runs away. Um, And so he's mistaken for a madman. Um, Jehu, however, tells his friends what the prophet has told him. They concur that he is to be king. Woohoo! Got a new king. Jehu does as he's told. Um, He kills Joram while he is healing in his bed, while Ahaziah is visiting. And then as he comes against them, this every sentinel that is sent out to inquire, um, do you come in peace, actually ends up defecting and joining Jehu's army. Take a look at 1 Kings 21, verses 19 through 24. Um, Joram is shot between the shoulder blades and it pierces his heart. King Isaiah of Judah is going to be killed too. In verse 29, this feels like it doesn't really belong right here. Um, in this story, Joram is flung out onto the plot of land that belonged to Ahab and Jezebel, the one that they have stolen from Naboth in 1 Kings 21. So Jezebel um, prepares for Jehu as he marches on to Jezreel. Jehu calls um, for those who are with him to identify themselves. And two eunuchs who are part of the group that take care of the queen say that they are. I'm with you, Jehu. And so they throw the queen out of a window. She lands on the ground below and is trampled to death by horses. When the whole matter is over, Jehu sends people to bury her. um, But we find that dogs have eaten most of her body. There was a prophecy that said that the body of Jezebel would be eaten by the dogs. And it has come to pass. Um, In chapter 10, Jehu is going to order all 70 of the sons of Ahab killed in Samaria. Their guardians kill them and send their heads back to Jehu, who piles them by the city gate 
there in Jezreel. He has to assure the people that he's not going to do likewise with all of them. Um, But this has fulfilled the prophecy and what he was ordered to do when he was anointed king. Uh, He kills all the family members, the relatives, the leaders under his regime, his friends, and the priests who serves him. So he wants no remnant of House Ahab and Ahaziah's administration. Ahab's administration to remain. However, he's also going to go further and kill 42 relatives of Ahaziah. Um, And in verses 12 through 14, this goes beyond what he was um, instructed to do. Ahaziah is sinful, um, but his family wasn't marked for extinction. Um, He's done this of his own initiative, and anytime we go beyond what we're ordered to do every time vengeance and anger is allowed to spill over beyond um, limits, it, there is a consequence. In verses 15 through 27, Jehu is going to engage in an elaborate trick to kill the Baal worshipers. He pretends to be an even bigger Baal worshiper than Ahab was. Once they've gathered, he kills them all. He destroys the Baal pillar and the temple and turns it into a latrine or a public toilet. So he's making a strong statement about how he feels about Baal worship. In verses 28 through 36, we see that while Jehu wipes out Baal worship, he doesn't get rid of all idolatry. Um, And for this, God is going to say that his dynasty is only going to last for four generations. He's been somewhat faithful, and that faithfulness will be rewarded. There are consequences for faithfulness, but he's also not been entirely faithful, and there are consequences for unfaithfulness. I hope that you're seeing a pattern for how every time something happens, every time something doesn't work out completely, it's always linked to unfaithfulness. And reward is always linked to faithfulness, even in um, short measure. Additionally, because of his unfaithfulness, they're going to lose territory. So Israel is going to be diminished under his rule, even though the rule is going to continue for four generations. He's going to rule for 28 years, and his son Jehoaz is going to follow him. In chapter 11, we return our focus to Judah. Ahaziah dies over in Judah, and his mother, Athaliah, is going to attempt to take over and be a queen. She's going to do this by killing the rest of the royal family, but Ahaziah's sister, Jehosheba, is going to hide one of his sons, Jehoash. She hides him with a priest who's going to hatch a counterplot to put this child on the throne that will unfold six years later. Story continues with that story. This priest, Jehoiada, along with some fellow priests, assassinate Athaliah and install Joash or um, as king. Jehoash is going to be called by two names, um, Jehoash or Joash. And so just know that that's the same person when it calls him by a different name. They, however, don't want to shed blood inside the temple, so they, when they kill the queen, they drag her um, through the horse's entrance and kill her there. It's a quite ignoble death for a queen. It now says that Jehoiada leads them in destroying the Baal temple and kill um, Matin, the chief priest of Baal. We know that if we were... okay. 
So in verse 21, uh, we have the word Joash that I just said is a, a different spelling of a name. In some of our, our manuscripts of this book, chapter 11, verse 21 is actually the first verse of chapter 12. So as we move into that story, um, Jehoash rules for 40 years. He makes dramatic improvements to the country, but he, idolatry is not completely eradicated. Verses 4 through 16 tell us that he repairs the temple of God, um, though he has to light a fire under the priests in order to get them on the job and get it done. I wonder if the priests have gotten lax, they no longer have fervor for their job, are they tired of watching this pattern of we rebuild and woohoo, everything is good. Oh, yeah, we're being conquered again. It's destroyed. As well as the wishy-washiness of worship. Oh, we're worshiping the living God. Good. I'm getting to do my job. Oh, now we're worshiping Baal. And oh, oh, we're worshiping God again. Are they tired of the back and forth or are they just grown cold in their worship of God? We, we don't know for sure. Verses 17 through 21, Jehoash cannot focus just on rebuilding the temple because Hazael of Aram is attacking. This leaves us wondering if worship was ever reinstated in the temple or if it was just a bricks and mortar renovation and repair. He may have intended to reinstitute worship, but is distracted by the attack here. So Hazael of Aram is attacking He's already taken a major part of the Philistines' territory. Now he wants to take um, the territory of Judah. He wants to take Jerusalem. Jehoash buys Hazael off with money that he takes out of the palace and temple treasuries. We're not told if this is the will of God or not. There's no indication that anyone ever inquires of God. But regardless, disaster is averted, at least for now. Two of his servants, whose motives are unstated, assassinate him and his son Amaziah um, follows him as king over Judah. I realize that I am still butchering names, but the, what I do is I look at the name, I pick a pronunciation, and I just go with it. The two servants, whose motives we don't know that kill him, may have done so because he took money from the temple treasury and used it to buy off a foreign government instead of conquering in the Lord's name. And so at this point, with um, Jehoash um, having left power and a son following chapter 12 ends, and that's the end of our journey for now.